book of Jude, verses 5 through 7 this morning. Let me begin by reading, though, the first four verses and then our text for the morning. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Christ Jesus, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Let's pray. Father, help us now, please, by Your Spirit. This is Your Word. This is Your Word, Father. You know what You intend to do with it in our hearts. And Father, we know that Your Spirit has come to guide us into all truth. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that the things we do not know that You would teach us, the things that we are not that You would make us, and the things that we do not have in order to glorify You more greatly in terms of our spiritual maturity and growth, we pray that You would give us those things so that we would grow to more greatly praise and glorify and reflect your name we pray jesus that you would be honored as the head and the king of this church and of this your people amen over the last 18 months we have uh, had several words that i think we could probably all take the time to list that have become uh, shall we say overused Uh, and tiresome of hearing, and one of those words has been the word unprecedented. I I think if we hear the word unprecedented one more time, there may be a hole torn somewhere in the universe. Unprecedented this and unprecedented that. And that term, isn't it, it's often used to communicate something of uh, being at a loss for what to do next. I mean, this is just unprecedented. What do we do? You know, it's it's used... uh, that when we respond to something, we, we don't know what else to say. We just say, well, it's just unprecedented. We're just at a loss. And you know, I would submit to you that that is a word that's perfectly at home and appropriate in a fallen world among human beings who do not possess omniscience like God does. That word works. It's true. For us, we don't know what's next. We, we don't know how to respond in, in, any, in every given situation. 
But as we read the text of Jude this morning, let me tell you where that word is not at home. The word unprecedented is not at home in relation to sin. We'll never stand before God when He judges sin on the great day because He is right to do so, because His holiness demands that He do so. We will never stand before God and say, well, you know, God, what you just did is unprecedented. Because all throughout Scripture, there is a precedent of sin. And the Bible repeatedly gives us warnings and precedents for sin. And what is coming if it is not repented of and if Christ does not save us from those sins and their consequences? We know exactly, don't we? The Bible is no Gnostic, mysterious roadmap. It is clear. It's honest, it's straightforward, and and beyond the warning, the Bible gives us illustrations so that not only are we warned in terms of words, we are warned in terms of illustrations where these things have actually happened already. And we can see those. And we understand those. And so I want to back up this morning again and read verses 3 and 4 in your hearing so that we have in mind what Jude is getting at. He writes in verses 3 and 4, Beloved, I was making, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, what salvation? The one mentioned in verses 1 and 2. I felt it, however, necessary to write to you appealing that you do what? Contend for the faith. Strain for the faith. Defend the faith. The faith, which faith? The one that was once for all handed down to the saints, unable to be tampered with, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's why we must contend. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. They've snuck into your own midst. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. And and then he goes on to describe them, doesn't he? They're ungodly, that, that is to say irreverent. They turn the grace of God into licentiousness. They are, they are morally not right. They are, they are living in perversion. And not only that, they deny that Jesus Christ is the sovereign and Lord of this world. And so Jude is now going to give us some illustrations so that we understand better. And in case... What he said in verses 3 and 4 seemed a little harsh. A little over the top. A little too much that, I mean, Christians really, uh, to contend? To to defend, to have this this staunch, uh, unwavering, unapologetic stand for the gospel and for the truth? Uh, Maybe it's even unnecessary because uh, we might be seen as, you know, unloving people. Nasty people. If we, if we actually do this contending thing and argue and defend our Lord and the faith that has been handed down. And, and so I think that spirit pervades too much of evangelical Christianity today. We just want to, you know, obey the, ninth, uh, the 11th commandment and be the nice guy. Don't offend anybody. Just go along to get along. But, but Jude says you can't do that. Because we're talking about faith that has been handed down once and for all, a seal, a final faith that that actually has the power to save. You must contend for that. 
And if you don't, there are consequences. And it's a sober warning that we need to hear. And verses 5 through 7 this morning give us not the unprecedented warning, but the precedented warning that comes when we reject the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, what Jude is contending for here is not a sterile doctrinal abstract. What Jude is contending for is the saving faith that saves men's souls from hell. And that is an eternally serious matter. And Jude is not willing to give up one iota of that message. And neither should we. If we love our fellow man, if we love the glory of God, if we love what Christ has done for us, we must contend. Because not to contend comes at an unthinkably high price. To reject the grace of God, as these examples do, comes at an incredibly high price. A price we cannot afford to pay. And so the question we must ask ourselves at this point, given the the precedented warnings, is it worth it to contend for the faith? Should we contend for the faith? Warnings are given throughout Scripture for one of two reasons. Number one is to expose the dangers of the evil itself. And secondly, to turn you away from the evil to what is good. Jude gives us these two things, both to expose the dangers of evil and then to turn us to what is good and life-giving in these examples. And so look at these examples with me this morning. Now, I want you to note that as we look at these three examples, these are common examples. For example, if you were to read through the extra biblical literature, the historical literature of Jude's day, you will find that the Jewish people often use these same three examples to communicate something to one another. These these extra biblical works, and Jude actually alludes to some of them, are not inspired. They're not biblical Uh, books of the Bible, but they are helpful historical companions to what was going on in the day so that you understand what is being said. For for example, the the Pseudepigrapha is a collection of writings that was found uh, throughout history. And when you read those, they're not inspired. They, They really don't claim inspiration, but they're helpful to understand the kind of words people use to talk to one another and the way they communicated ideas to each other. And so when we look at those, we understand how they communicated. And Jude is using these three examples because they were examples already familiar to the people of his day, the people to whom he was writing. And he did so so that they might understand his message better. Tom Schreiner says this, reminders were needed so that believers experience afresh the power of the gospel. And so Jude does that here. And Jude reminds them, look with me if you will, in verse 5, he reminds them that they know all things once for all. It's the same phrase used earlier of the gospel message that was delivered once and for all, not to be improved on, not to be taken away from. And so this is the once for all gospel that we are dealing with and how these people in their very precedented way dealt with either receiving it or rejecting it. There is, brothers and sisters, in Jude's warnings this morning, in these examples, there is infinite power in God 
through the gospel to save if we believe it, but there is also infinite power in God to condemn us if we reject that. And that is what we must see in these three examples. The warning is that Jews' readers must remember and cling to the once-for-all faith that they have been handed. The once-for-all saving gospel that they possess. And so Jude begins with a very close-to-home message to them, and then he moves outward away from that. Number one, he gives them an example of what unbelief looks like. An example of unbelief. Jude opens with a very sobering account of the nation of Israel. Notice what he says. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, that He, after He saved a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Now this is what we must understand, brothers and sisters. When the nation of Israel left Egypt, not everyone in that caravan were destined for life in the promised land. Somebody might be tempted to look at this passage and say, see, they lost their salvation. Because after all, they're Israel. They are automatically in. That is not the case. Notice what Paul says in Romans 9 and verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. They did not lose anything. For not, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Right? What, 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 why is that? How, how could it be that these Jewish people were taken out of Egypt and then uh, God kills an entire generation of them? He judges them. I thought they were all in. Paul answers that question for us in Galatians chapter 3. Therefore be sure, he says, that it is those who are of faith, do you hear that? Who are the sons of Abraham. The Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham. The believer, what do we find in the, the book of Jude? That those who went out Not all of them did not believe. Well, how do you become God's people? Through faith. God is dealing with the nation of Israel both as a nation in an earthly sense and as His chosen people in a spiritual sense. So that not everybody in the nation were God's spiritual people. Therefore, some of them died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. It is still necessary. It does not matter who you are. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. You must believe God. You must accept the promises of God or there is no hope for you. It doesn't matter who you are, what family you are descended from. It does not matter what nation you belong to. All men are sinners in need of a Savior that can only be remedied by faith in the living Christ. And so Jude warns them, just like the nation of Israel who thought they had it all together, who thought that they, you know, because they possessed Abraham's physical DNA that they were in, be sure that you don't find yourself under judgment because of unbelief. It's a serious warning that though Israel, being named Israel, being descended from Abraham, could actually die 
and be punished in their sin because they chose to live in unbelief. This is not conjecture on Jude's part. Jude's not going out on a limb, but he's relying on the very clear demonstration that what the people of God did in Numbers 14 was virulent rejection of God. They weren't ambivalent to the truth. They chose to rebel in unbelief against God. In fact, turn over to the book of Numbers. And let's look at that together. Numbers chapter 14. This is a great chapter in Israel's history. Great not in the sense of it's all sunshine and rainbows, but it's a great chapter in that we learn much about the character of God in this particular portion of their life. In Numbers chapter 14 and verse 10, we read this, but all the congregation said to stone them with stones. What's the context? What's the context? Well, the context is this. God has taken the children of Israel out of Egypt. He's led them to the border of the promised land and and He has said to them, go in and spy out the land that I am going to give you. You remember the story? And so they send 12 spies and 10 of the spies come back and they say, it can't be done. It can't be done. They've got fortified cities. There's giants in the land. It can't be done. You've led us, Moses, you've led us into the wilderness to die. It's all your fault. And two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, say, whoa, 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 whoa. It can be done. It can be done because God said it could be done. Because God will do this for us. And that the people of Israel rise up against Moses. And they say to stone them with stones. Who? Moses and Caleb and Joshua. And then notice at the end of verse 10, then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel as if to remind them who they are dealing with. It was blatant unbelief. Now I want you to think, brothers and sisters, about what Israel had already seen to that point. They'd seen the greatest nation on the face of the earth at that time in history absolutely brought to its knees by ten plagues. Every one of the plagues attacking one of their major gods. God says, oh really? You want to play who's God? And he begins to systematically dismantle the, the very foundation of Egyptian civilization by attacking their gods. And then he goes after the firstborn to attack the very line of succession for Pharaoh himself. God killed the next Pharaoh who was regarded as the ultimate of gods. And then God takes His people out and He leads them out, which was no small feat. And He leads them to the sea and then Pharaoh chases. We all are familiar with the, with, with the, the, the story in Scripture. And, and, and the ocean opens up. God's people go through on dry land. Pharaoh thinks he'll do the same thing. They get in the middle and God collapses the walls of water and the Egyptian nation was no more. That's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive. And yet as they wander and go towards the land God had promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their fathers, they get to the border and the spies come back and say, you can't do it, there's giants there. 
Excuse me? There's also an ocean with an entire army that have been turned into sediment at the bottom of it. There's an entire nation in chaos because their gods have been dethroned. And by the way, there's over a million of us who've been preserved and led through this wilderness. You're telling me giants are going to stop you? Moses has got to be at a loss at this point. These people! These people! Because I want you to notice something. Let's go on from verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? Reject me. Blatant unbelief. How long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them. And I will make you into a greater nation. Mightier than they. God's done. Or so He says. God is done. And we, 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 we learn also in this count that this is not the first time this has happened. No, it is definitely not the first time this has happened. They have rejected Yahweh in the past. They Notice what He says. How long will they not believe in Me? Not in the signs that I do. How long will they not believe Me? Just as Jude said, it was for the current group who had snuck in among them. They denied the only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. The children of Israel denied Yahweh. They denied who He was. It's not that they didn't believe that they came through the ocean. It's not that they didn't believe that they had seen the ten plagues. They didn't believe in the God who did them. That's the problem. It's not the object... Of their faith. They're looking for something else. They're rejecting, rather, the object of their faith. They're willing to accept the promises, but they're objecting the one who gives them. Remember how this whole nation started. Genesis 15, 6. Then Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. How did Israel even come into existence to begin with? Well, they believed God. Very simple didn't believe in the, the fruits of the promises of God. No, it says Abraham believed God. The, the, the source and the fountain of faith. Brothers and sisters, we must understand this. Unbelief is not merely choosing not to accept God or maybe going another way. Unbelief is absolute rejection of God. It's wagging our finger in the face of God and saying, we don't want you. It's a conscious, volitional rejection of God Himself despite all evidence to the contrary that He is who He says He is and that He is good and will do what He promised to do. And so they are, they are languishing in unbelief out in the wilderness. And God deals with them. God deals with them swiftly. Now I want you to notice something. This is not the first time this has happened. I want you to go back to Exodus. Hold your place in Numbers 14. And I want you to go back to Exodus chapter 32. In fact, we learn from Numbers that this is the tenth time that the children of Israel had done this to God. Tenth time. 
that they have blatantly, volitionally rejected him. Here's what we find in Exodus 32, the, the precursor to all of this. You remember, again, the context of this chapter. God has called Moses up uh, to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. Moses comes back, and what are they doing when he gets back? He comes down the mountain, and they are building a golden calf. Moses says he hears the sound of war in the camp, and there's, there's a rejection of God, and they're cursing God and saying he's led them out into the wilderness to die. And Moses, uh, Moses, we know the story, breaks the Ten Commandments, and so he has to go get it a second time. And God is done with the people. God is finished with their unbelief, as it were, from a human level. And he says to Moses, Moses is angry in Exodus uh, 32, and God says, I'm angry too. And God says, I'm done with these people. I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And Moses says to God, God, you can't do that. Why, Moses? Because you're a faithful God, and if you wipe them off the face of the earth, then what is Egypt going to say? Words going to get back, and they're going to go, see, they didn't have a real God. He's a liar. He didn't keep his promises just like our gods couldn't save us either. This is all a sham. And Moses says, you've made a promise. You've got to stick with it. And God says, you're right, Moses. And by the way, in this chapter as well as the incident in Numbers chapter 14. God had told Moses, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to start all over. It'll be your descendants who will be my people Moses no you can't do that and he begs the Lord doesn't he he begs the Lord not to destroy them God acquiesces to Moses request and then Moses makes that great request in chapter 33 verse 18 I pray you show me your glory in the face of blatant unbelief show me your glory And God says, okay, Moses, here's the deal. You can't see me and live. No man can look on me physically and live. It's overwhelming glory. It will literally slay you. So here's what I'm going to do. And he puts, we know the story, right? He puts Moses in the the alcove of the rock. He tucks him away and he says, don't look when I pass by. And as God passes by, Moses hears. And what does Moses hear? I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Gracious. Compassionate. Slow to anger. Abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet... Yet, 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 he says, I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Fast forward to Numbers 14. The people have angered God again. They've rejected God again. They have said, you've let us out here to die again. And on we go. And we learn this is the tenth time that they've tempted God like this. And beginning in verse 12, God says, okay, because you have not believed. You're going to have to die this time. 
You, you have to die. I am a God of grace. I'm a God of compassion. I'm a God of loving kindness. But there comes a point in which unbelief must be punished. And so he does. I will smite them, verse 12 of Numbers 14, with pestilence and dispossess them. And I will make you, Moses, into a greater nation, mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for by your strength you brought up this people from their midst. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, meaning Canaan, that they heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while your clouds stand over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you slay this people as one man, meaning in their entirety, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land, which he promised them by oath. Therefore, he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now I pray. Let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. And now Moses reminds the Lord of the sermon he preached to him in Exodus. The Lord is slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the Father on the children to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even till now. So the Lord said, verse 20, I have pardoned them according to your word, but indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers. Brothers and sisters, you can reject the grace of God only for so long. The promises of God, the person of God, and God finally says there is a point in which they have spurned me for the last time. And these people will not enter into the land. Now how was God both faithful to judge and faithful to save? Because their children went into the land. And because those like Joshua and Caleb did believe God, they too went into the land. But unbelief damned the majority of this nation, an entire generation, to their ultimate judgment. And so Jude warns these Christians that he is writing to. He says, listen, you must believe. I'm reminding you that you know all the things. You know what God has done. You'd better make sure you are believing Because unbelief will land you under judgment. Jude warns the high cost of unbelief and exhorts us to believe in God, believe and accept the grace of God that He has shown in previous verses. Israel had more experiences than you and I will ever have. (laughs) We, We won't see plagues like that. We don't see all the things that Israel was blessed to see. Yet they merely relied, listen, on external things like who they were. Well, we're Israel. I mean, we're going in. Hey, that's all that matters. I'm Israel. But it wasn't enough. In fact, it it is faith that saves them, not their DNA. And so we need to be careful, brothers and sisters. Here's a warning to us. Don't place your hope on anything but the grace of God revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all we have to hope in. To believe God. And let that alone be credited and counted as our righteousness. 
Saving faith is an ever-present dependence upon God, and it grows in its focus upon Him. At every step, at every turn, those who are saved keep looking to God, keep believing in God, keep relying upon God, keep hoping only in God. Israel perished, we might say, because they had faith in faith, but not faith in God. It's a difference. And Judah's warning us, don't let your faith be in faith. Don't let your faith be in something else. Make sure your faith is in Him who saves Jude moves out then to his second warning away from the familiar experience of Israel to the alarming events of rebelling angels. And and you'll notice that this seems to grow from kind of mild to the bizarre to the absolutely unthinkable. It starts with unbelief, something as simple as unbelief, and then it devolves further. And I I believe that's on purpose that Jude is saying, listen, it may seem mild what you're doing now, just not believing. But but, but if you're not careful, it slides to this, and then it slides to this, and and you don't want to end up there. So it's it's a faithful warning. It's a precedented warning. And the example of rebellion he mentions in verse 6 comes out of Genesis 6. And angels who do not keep their own domain, but abandon their proper abode, he is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. What's he referring to? Well, he's referring to the account of what just immediately preceded the flood. Genesis chapter 6, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land. Uh, Population is increasing and daughters were born to them. That the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. Then the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The, the, the term sons of God is understood throughout the Old Testament to refer to angels. Job 1.6, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them. We know that they're referring to angels there. And so Jude is warning that, that there is a type of rebellion against God, against His created order that took place in Genesis chapter 6. John MacArthur points out that the silence of Jude further describing the angels testifies to the fact, again, that the audience understood what Jude was saying, that they knew that this had happened. It was part of their well-familiar history in dealing with fallen angels. Jude references this book of First Enoch in his letter later on, which, again, as a historical background is helpful, but it's not inspired. So what's the issue? The issue is this, that these angels had been created for the worship of God. They failed in that. They fell with Lucifer, but they are not bound yet. They they, they are still limited in what they can do, but they've not been cast into their final judgment at this point. They are still uh, accountable to and subject to the sovereign authority and rule of God for their created purposes. But they stepped outside those bounds. And in stepping outside those bounds, gross immorality follows. 
They, they descend, they take on human flesh, the, they take on the, the appearance as males, they, they assume humanity so that they can reproduce, and they began to mix with the beautiful earthly human daughters of men and procreate with them. And this is the pattern of Romans 1, brothers and sisters, in short. We're told that this is akin to false teachers in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Yet in the same way, these men, what men, false teachers, this is what they do. They step outside the norms of God. They step outside the sovereign accountability and rule of God in their lives as well. And they, as immoral men, rebel against God in their immorality. They don't subject themselves to the authority of God. They step outside of it. And we need to understand that we are all, in unbelief, we are all capable of doing the same thing. Oh, we're not angels. But listen, if angels can do this, if angels who have seen God face to face, if angels who have fallen from the graces of God by following Satan and said, if they are capable of this, so are we in our unbelief. And they begin to do immoral things that God cannot tolerate. There are, again, as I said in the first hour about Babel, there are limits to what God will do and deal with. That there will come a time when God judges this earth again with fire. And our our world needs to be warned that that is so. It's not popular to talk about judgment. It's not popular to talk about hell. It's not popular to tell people that unless they repent, they will suffer those things. But it's the truth. And the truth in this precedented warning is that God judged an entire nation simply on the basis of their unbelief. That unbelief for you can lead to further degradation and rebellion if you are not careful. So you need to make sure you're, number one, found believing. Number two, you need to guard against this. You need to be aware that this can happen. And in doing so, these angels fall and perpetrate crimes against God's desired order. Brothers and sisters, this is our Father's world, as I've said over the last few weeks. He has ordered how it should be lived in and established norms and precedents that we must follow. And if we choose not to, judgment ensues. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, what's the, uh, what's the takeaway? He'll do it to you too. If you don't believe, if you sin against God, if you step outside of these things. False teachers, as again, verse 8 indicates, and that's the con- larger context here, they're the same as these angels. In the same way these men, dangerous, rebellious, immoral, their doom is just as certain. And by the way, these it's not like these people that Jude is writing to are more than likely swept up by them. They're actually probably being tormented by some of these false teachers. They're kind of glad to hear that God hasn't forgotten about them and God's going to deal with the false teachers who are creating so much heartache for them. But these angels, because of their going outside the boundaries of God and moving past what God designed, God has 
punished them and relegated them and kept them in eternal bonds. No, some angels are still free. Even fallen angels are free to move about and do as they wish. But apparently from Jude and from Peter, these particular angels are being held in chains. They are immovable. They've been locked up until their judgment. There is no bail or parole for them. They're simply awaiting the execution. Jude says, listen, this is a warning you need to take seriously, Christian. This is the the result of unbelief. This could be the result of false teaching. Don't follow it. Don't imbibe or participate with them in their works and their teaching of darkness. And rest assured that that those who are faithful, don't worry about it. God hasn't forgotten you. God's going to deal with those who create issues for you. And then third, we have an example of absolute depravity. This is just the account of Sodom and Gomorrah is absolutely heartrending. To, 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 to understand what was going on. How bad can it get? Hey, look around us and say, man, it can't get much worse. Oh, trust me, it can get a whole lot worse. We're not even close to Sodom and Gomorrah yet. But that was real. And it may be real again. But God won't tolerate it when it comes. The, the fallen and rebellious angels had invaded earth. No, 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 follow Follow the, 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 the descent into depravity. Starts with just unbelief. Then it goes to angels taking on flesh and cohabitating with women. Okay? Follow? We're still dealing with a pattern here, men with women. Now we go to something far more grotesque. Not only are we dealing with unbelief, a rejection of God volitionally. Not only are we dealing with stepping outside the sovereign authority and the order of life the way God created it, now we're dealing with absolute, in-your-face, perversion of what God had created. At least the angels were trying to make it look normal. These guys aren't even trying in Sodom. It's just unabashed depravity on display and it results in the swift judgment of God Jude says be careful that you could end up here Paul says in Romans 1 you deny your creator you begin to worship the thing created rather than the one who created it then you devolve into this and then you keep going down the road of depravity until you get to the point where what You have a homosexual revolution. Women abandoning the natural function of the man desiring each other. Jude follows the same pattern that Paul spells out in Romans chapter 1. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah as well as other cities in that region were judged immediately. uh, Genesis 19.1 Now two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he arose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. Lot knew who he was dealing with. And he said, now, behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, we shall spend the night in the square. 
you almost get the sense that Lot knows, uh, A, I shouldn't be here. <laughs> and B, these angels, I don't want them to see what's going on here. Guys, quickly, let's just, oh, look over here, kids. Let's go straight to my house. Let's wash your feet. Let's, no, no, we're, we, Lot, we want to see what's going on over there. No, trust me, you don't. And so in verse 3, yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house and prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old. Age doesn't necessarily produce godliness or wisdom. All people from every quarter... Moses, in writing this, wants us to see the totality of what is involved. It is literally the entire city. And they called a lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him. said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. He knows the character of his city. Now behold, I have, no, this is the depravity. I have two daughters who have not had relations with men. Let me bring them out to you and you do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of a... Can you even, fathers, can you even begin to comprehend that kind of depravity? I can't even begin to, to imagine what is going through Lot's mind at this point. Sacrificing your daughters to these perverts? Unbelievable wickedness. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, this one came in as an alien, speaking of Lot, and already he's acting like our judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. We're going to take you. You, you didn't. That's where depravity leads you. Vitriol. Don't give us what we want. We'll do it to you worse. This is a terrible scene. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house. The angels did and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great. The important and the unimportant. The mayor of the city and the beggar on the street. So that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Notice they didn't stop. They're blind. They're still trying to find the door. That's how driven they are in their depravity. Unbelief. Rebellion. Depravity. And Judah's warning saying that's where you head if you're not careful. Guard that which has been handed down to you from all time. Believe the Gospel. Turn to Christ. Otherwise, you will find yourself down this road. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah, they were not only known for their perversion, they were known for their lack, lack of hospitality. They were cruel cities. If you read ancient literature, nobody liked them, not because of their lifestyle, but because they were just jerks. They didn't extend hospitality as was expected in the ancient Near East. They certainly treat Lot and his guest, his angel guest, that way. They were sent from God to warn Lot. 
to get Lot out of the city. Just as Jude is writing to the Christians, trying to warn them and get them out of, of a world of hurt in worldly thinking. What happens to Sodom and Gomorrah? God destroys it with fire. Absolutely melts it down. There were, in archaeology, there was so much debate for so many years that there was, this was just a mythical account uh, because there was nothing left. It was just obliterated until recent times. And lo and behold, archaeology has proved that the Bible is accurate once again. And guess what we have found? Ancient cities. Every evidence of every jot and tittle of what God said happened there, happened there. God demands purity and kindness to strangers throughout Scripture. You look at the the way Israel behaved in relation to other nations versus the way other nations acted towards other nations. God said, listen, when there's a stranger or a sojourner, you leave the corners of your field unharvested so that as they're passing through, they have something to eat. Why? Because it reflects on me and I'm a God of grace and compassion and care for, for, for the pilgrim, for the sojourner. You, you take care of them. Other nations just well, let them starve to death. We don't care or better yet. Let's abuse them and then kill them. No wonder God acted so quickly and harshly. It went against everything that God was. A pure God. A kind God. Everything about Sodom and Gomorrah was the opposite. Not only did they not believe Him, they opposed Him by the very opposite of His own character. They sought to break the boundaries that God created in in human relationships by pursuing strange flesh just as the angels did and crossing over into flesh. I think we all understand. And and parents, let me just say, don't run from the truths of Scripture. Help your children understand these things in an age-appropriate way, okay? You, You understand what the text is saying. You help them understand from a biblical perspective what is going on and why it's wrong. Don't let them get their information from the world. You give them the information. God put this in Scripture. It used to be read uh, to the entire congregation. Let's not run from it in the 21st century. Let's help our kids understand what's going on here. It's a complete falling away from God in the most depraved ways, the most unnatural ways, the most vile ways. And Jude says, you need to be warned by these examples. This looks like where false teaching will take you. Notice what he says at the very end. They are exhibited. The word means to lay out, to expose publicly. It, uh, one one lexicographer defines it as as a body being laid out for a funeral viewing on display. Jude says this is what God does. He puts Sodom and Gomorrah out for display so that you see what His holiness, what His righteousness does to those who reject Him. These cities stand, brothers and sisters, in history in anthropology and archaeology and in theology as a lasting monument to this one reality. God will not 
be mocked. He just won't. And we need to warn our, our, our fellow professing Christians, listen, don't play around with truth. Don't dilly-dally with, with, with things that are blasphemous or irreverent. It's not funny. God deals seriously with these things. He will not be mocked. His truth, whether in nature or in His words, will not be twisted. And everything that threatens His sovereign rule will eventually be eliminated wherever it's found. We don't say that because we're angry with people. We say that because we are infinitely concerned about people. Because we love them enough to tell them the truth. Well, we don't believe that. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. God said it. And we are commissioned to tell that. Well, I don't want to hear that. doesn't matter. The fact that you don't want to hear it is proof to me that your conscience is already telling you that it's true. We know instinctively and Jude warns, these are examples you'd better pay attention to. Remember, there is a promise of salvation to those who believe, but to the rebellious and to the deceitful and to the defiant, there will only be judgment. The church of Jesus Christ is not defined, brothers and sisters, by what we put on the door in calling ourselves a church. The church of Jesus Christ is defined by the purity of its teaching and the holding to the authority of Scripture and to the lifting up as Christ as its head. That's what defines a church. Anybody can go down to fast signs and have a sign made and call themselves a church. doesn't mean God calls you a church. Jude says, listen, we need to guard that which makes us the people of God. Guard that which makes us a true church church and all forms of error that would incur God's judgment need to be jettisoned immediately. We need to cling with hope to the goodness of God reflected in His Son, Jesus Christ, who came and paid the penalty for, yes, even the most heinous of sins. You know what? If Sodom and Gomorrah had repented, God would have saved them. You talk about amazing The grace of God, the power of God could have saved even Sodom and Gomorrah had they repented. But they didn't. They didn't. And therein lies our warning. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, as we prepare to come to Your table now, we pray that with hearts of faith we would receive these symbols of what Christ did for us. Living a perfect life for us as represented with bread without leaven, dying a sacrificial death and satisfying Your wrath and Your judgment, the shedding of His blood, so that we might be covered in perfect righteousness. Father, cause us to receive these things believing that Christ has done all of these for us. These do not save us They are sermons. They are testimonies. They are examples of what Christ has done. So, Father, for those who believe, may we receive this 
with great joy and hope. And Father, if there's anyone here who does not believe, who cannot partake of this because they don't believe, may today be the day, God, that You break them and You bring them to the place where they will acknowledge You and believe on You, that they might be saved by Your awesome and powerful grace. Father, work in our hearts even as we wait to receive the elements and as we meditate upon You and all that You are and all that You have done and being careful to heed the examples and the warnings of Jude this morning. Praise You, Lord Jesus, for all that You have accomplished for us. We love You because You first loved us and You gave Yourself for us. You alone are worthy of our thoughts and our worship this morning as we partake. Holy Spirit, continue to guide us in truth. Sanctify our thoughts. Cause us to mature in our walk with You and with Your Father and with the Son. We pray all these things in the name of the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ and our Master. Amen.